Well, good morning. Um, woke up yesterday with a, a little bit of a gimp in my ankle. And the story goes, uh, I was a senior in high school, and we did the senior trip. I was on the East Coast. So we did the senior trip to Canada. And um, I was in a, a little condo room, and there was a third-story balcony, and I thought it would be kind of a fun thing to show everybody how cool I was. And so I was going to jump off the third-story balcony into a snowbank because it was Canada, and it was really snowy, and there were snowbanks everywhere. And so I jumped off the balcony into what I thought was a snowbank. And there's actually just a big frozen hill mound of dirt that was white, <laughs> like ice, you know. And so it, it jammed up my ankles and, and messed me up. And about once every three years, I wake up and can't walk. So it's kind of a funny thing. Um, it actually fits really good with the series we're in because the series is called Move. And yesterday... I couldn't move, you know, so I contemplated, you know, how interesting that was and paradoxical and all that other stuff. Um, And it actually led to one of those funny moments. I don't know if you have those, but I do. Um, I think we all are a little bit strange in our own ways. But uh, where I was wanting to go this morning was just the idea of, uh, again, with this whole series, just picturing a bike and feeling like, there's things that were designed to move, and they only really work when they are moving. And the church is kind of like that. And so last week we talked about the commitments we had as a, as a church, like kind of at a leadership level or, or just a DNA level, um, big picture stuff. But what really drives a church, what really makes it go is the commitment of people. It's, it's everybody in the church kind of having a certain commitment or orientation or leaning or energy towards something and that's really what drives it and so uh it was kind of funny because i was going there and then yesterday i was sitting around feeling sorry for myself and and i uh and i thought of all these stories i'd heard of church planters that about a year into a church plant they'd take a sabbatical or take a month off or two weeks off and they'd go into the desert and they'd have a nervous breakdown and and god can't do this and then they go back and tell the congregation you know um, I was out in the desert, and you know, here's the deal: you guys do all the work, you know, in the ministry, and and all lead and teach kind of a thing, and and they would put it on the people that way. And and so yesterday, when I was feeling sorry for myself. I was thinking, maybe that's what I need to do. I need to go in and tell everyone that that I've had a breakdown, and you know, and I just can't do it anymore. And they need to do all the work, and I'll just lead and teach. And then I thought, Ken, you you're an idiot. You know, you've gimped around on a bad ankle for half a day. <laughs> And uh, what really made me realize I was being stupid was I was kind of moaning and groaning and pulling myself around the house. And then Tam and I watched a documentary last night called Touching the Void. I don't know if any of you guys have seen that. Jeez. It's about two climbers that were alpine climbing in Peru, and they were uh, summiting one of the highest peaks that had never been summited, all this stuff. And on the way down at 20,000 feet, one of them breaks their leg slices off half their knee, jams up in it. I mean, it's just it's horrible. And they're at 20,000 feet. They're out of fuel to be able to melt ice you know, and snow to make water. There's a storm coming in. And the guy that broke his leg thought his partner was going to leave him. The partner thought he probably should have left him. But he starts trying to you know, lower him down with the rope they have. And he'd lower him 300 feet, and then he'd kind of climb down to where he was and, and all this other stuff. Well, he ends up lowering him over, over like an overhang, and he doesn't realize it. It's, you know, the wind chill factor they said was, ne- you know, below negative 50. Uh, you know, and this guy's hangling, like hanging, dangling from the overhang, and he can't reach anything, so he can't 
take the weight off the ropes that the other guy can climb down. And the other guy doesn't know what's gone on. The other guy sits there for two hours and he thinks his buddy's dead and, and his hold starts to give way and he's starting to slide. And so eventually he cuts the rope and the guy drops 80 feet uh, through kind of like a, like a false ceiling in a crevasse and then drops another 50 feet into the crevasse. And uh, the, the buddy puts himself in a snow cave that night, comes down, sees where his, you know, his friend would have fallen and sees the crevasse and, and knows that he's dead. And so he makes it the rest of the way down barely himself. Well, this guy that fell in the crevasse, like lowers, you know, spends the whole night, you can't climb out of it, lowers himself down. So he's now like 200 feet into this crevasse, just going into the belly of like the earth kind of a thing. And it's pitch black because it's the only thing he can do. And I'm like, he's lowered himself down. He's on this mountain, 20,000 feet up. There's nobody. And somehow by lowering himself down, he's able to get to a place where he can see light and is able to climb out. And then he you know, pulls himself down the mountain. Then he gets to the glacier field and he pulls himself to the glacier field. And then he has with a broken knee and everything else. And so it's this crazy deal. Anyways, um, I didn't moan as much on the way back to the bed. <laughs> Because I really felt stupid because my wife, you know, I think she was starting to look at me strange. She grew up in Prineville, you know. So uh, so anyways, I, I realized I was being an idiot. But um, coming to you this morning, we, we do need to look at commitments. I think that, that we as a congregation have on our shoulders, that, that we as Christians have on our shoulders. And the question that kind of prompted me and got me going was this. It's a big question, but it's it's this. Why would God do to people the very opposite of his commands toward people? Why would God do to people the very opposite of the thing that he commands us um, to do towards people? Have you ever had that question thrown at you? Why did God support genocide in the Old Testament? Why did God, you know, have people killed and, and allow people to die in the Old Testament? Why would God hurt people? if the command to us is so strong in the area that we love people and help people? Have you ever really pondered that question? I mean, it's a tough question, right? It's, it's tough because that's there. And so you'll run into people and some people will be like, the Old Testament is a God of hate and wrath and the New Testament's a God of love. And so these two things really can't go together. And so you even had early forms of Christianity and, and the Marcionites and, and different sects and groups that would really split off from the Old Testament and say that was a different God. I mean, they really struggle with that. They, really, they can't even reconcile it. And, and I think there's people today, and sometimes I ask that question, and why would God do to people the very opposite of what he commands us to do towards people? And so let me just take you to a couple quick passages. I mean, that's a huge question, and we could spend weeks on it. But let me just try and make one simple point. And if you um, look at Job. I've got it on the board if you if you don't want to. But Job, beginning of chapter 42. And, and Job's wrestling with this exact same thing, right? Job's got his family. He's got his livelihood. He's got his physical health. <laughs> I know what that one's like. Um, and they all start getting taken from him. And so he's really asking God this question, what gives? Why would you allow this to happen? Why would you even maybe even do this to me? But but what gives? And God kind of tells uh, Job that he's asking the wrong question. And then Job kind of gets it. 
And here's his response. And his response is this, um, beginning of chapter 42. Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. And you asked, who is it that obscures my counsel with knowledge? So why are you coming to me with meaningless words, Job, kind of your accusations? And Job says this, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. Now, is he talking about wonderful what happened to him? Like, it's wonderful I got boils on my skin. It's wonderful that my my kids have died. It's wonderful that, you know, my livelihood's been taken away. That's not what he's talking about. Things too wonderful for Job are that God has a plan, that God has his purposes, that God cannot be thwarted, that he's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. And that's what Job's talking about. Isaiah, we see something very similar. And so if you'll flip over to Isaiah, um, Isaiah chapter 46, and this is a pretty famous passage of scripture, but in Isaiah 46, Isaiah says this, beginning in verse 9. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. And I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And what's really fascinating is, Isaiah, you know, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, this comes right before he says that he's going to raise somebody up from a far off land to come down and basically punish his, his children, the nation of Israel. So, I mean, he gives these words that, that my plan, my purpose will stand. He says it right before he's going to do something that's paradoxical. The thing that kind of brings on the question, why would God do to people what he commands us not to do to people? Does that make sense? And so God is, is about to do one of those moments that bring on those kinds of questions. And he says, here, you got to understand something. I'm God. I make known the beginning. I make known the end. And I have a purpose. And my purpose will stand. End of discussion. And the answer to that question, how come God can do to people what he commands us not to do to people, is this very simple fact, and it's, it's very difficult to, to digest, I think, sometimes. And I'm not saying that this is the thing you throw at anybody that has a misfortune, but here's the truth. The truth is this. God has a plan or a purpose, and it's higher than people. God's purpose, God's plan cannot change. It is direct. It's a straight line. It's a straight arrow. And that plan, that purpose is higher than people. Now, you and I, if we have a plan, it can't be higher than people. It's less than people. It's not standing up above the nations and above history and above all things that have been or will be. And it's and our plan isn't at that kind of a lofty level. It's just a very selfish kind of agenda and it's mine and I'm just one of you and my plan cannot be higher than you and so God commands me in all things to love God's plan is different it's of a different nature and so we have to understand that that God's purpose God's plan it's high 
and it will stand and it's not going to bend. And when we disobey or if things go wrong or if God's plan says something, that will come to pass. And so the Pharisees, a sect that grew up after the Israelites go off, they get punished, they come back, and it it grows up this sect. And one of the things they're really intent on is that we're going to follow the letter of the law. We got carted off and punished because our forefathers didn't follow the letter of the law. They weren't ridiculously obedient. And so in some sense, they start with the right idea, but they get wrong what the letter of the law is. And, and they get it all messed up. But that's the idea. We're going to follow the letter of the law so that our direction and God's purposes and plans will match up. We don't want to get crossways with God. If we deviate, we get crossways, so much the worse for us. So they don't want to do that. And it's kind of an interesting thing. And so the next time we see persecution kind of talked about in a theological sense is when we get to Acts. We've mentioned it now for two weeks. But we've got the church in Jerusalem. And it's the new baby Christian community. And Stephen and and him getting stoned brings on a persecution that begins to scatter the believers. And not only that, but God calls Peter to go to a Roman centurion's house. And it's really interesting amazing in chapter 11 he explains what happens at Cornelius's house and how he took it to mean and so in chapter 11 of Acts and begin uh, beginning in verse 15 this is what Peter says as I began to speak the Holy Spirit came on them as he'd come on us at the beginning and then I remembered what the Lord had said John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit And so if God gave them the same gift that he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And when they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So Peter goes, and and it's this real strange thing. These Gentiles are not part of the the believing um, Judaic community that that knew Yahweh God, this God that had been with them since the patriarchs and the the forefathers. And and he goes into this this Roman centurion's house, and and the Holy Spirit, God, comes and descends and and says, you know, these people are mine, basically, by being there. Because God cannot be somewhere if it's unholy, if it's not a place that can meld with him. Does that make sense? That can unite with him. So God shows up and Peter goes, whoa, God is doing for the Gentiles what he did for us. And so I got to get on board with that. This gift of salvation, this, this gift of a relationship with God, Okay, that, that unity, the fellowship that we have with the spirit is for everybody and not just us Jews. It's God's purpose. I can't get sideways with that because his plan is going to succeed. And so the believing community even jumped on it again in verse 18. And when they heard this, they praised God. Wow, God, your plan is good. It's good. And you have granted that even the Gentiles are going to be able to repent unto life, be saved. And it's a fascinating thing. So here's where this goes for me. Um, Matthew sixteen eighteen, if you'll turn to it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And this is just to pick up a little bit of the context. 
this is when Jesus asks people, who, who do they say I am? The crowds, the, the people that are following us, who do they really think I am? Do they get the plan? Do they get the purpose? And, and they say a couple things, and Peter kind of gets it right, and he confesses that you are um, you're the Christ. And so Jesus replies, you know, he gets that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in verse 17, Jesus replies to Peter this way. And it's a prophecy, but he says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he says something really interesting that kind of just flows with with his earthly ministry. And he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. You know, there's already like fanaticism out there. It's not yet time. Um, Sit on it, right? Um, But what he prophesies to Peter is this. I'm going to build this church and I'm going to do it on you. Now, how did he do it on Peter? He did it because at the day of Pentecost, he was preaching. To Jews, Peter was preaching and thousands came to the Lord. And then he calls Peter to go to Cornelius' house, this Roman centurion, and, and Peter goes and they get saved, right? And then you've got um, Philip going as an evangelist and he goes to these, these people, these Sumerians and whatnot, and then along comes Peter, and when Peter comes, what happens? The Holy Spirit confirms and blesses that ministry. And so you've, you've got the call of going to the Jews and the Gentiles and the Sumerians to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And Peter kind of is the first one to show up on the scene when God blesses that ministry in each of those different spheres. And it gets the church going. It, he builds it on Peter as a, as a cornerstone, if you will. That was the prophecy and that's what happened But here's the fascinating thing. It's the first time that the word church in this kind of a formal, technical way is used. Jesus didn't say, um, my, you know, he didn't use another word. He used church. And Matthew writes down church. This idea of a congregation of your followers, the, the assembly of your people, Jesus is going to be built on this ministry as people go and share the gospel. He didn't talk about the Jews. He didn't talk about the disciples. He talked about the church. He says it's going to be built, and then he comes back with this, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So not only is it going to be built, this church, the assembly of believers, the the congregation, not only is it going to be built, but it's going to last, and it's going to stand And no matter what comes against it, it cannot go away. It will not go away. It will succeed. And so here's something very interesting. We know God's plan for the church. And God's plan for the church is that it would succeed. And I have some, like, sour moments sometimes where I get depressed, like, what's going to happen to the church? Is it like this endangered species? And is it going to go away? Because everybody's down on the church these days. Even the church people are down on the church these days. Have you noticed that? 
And I, I kind of have these uh, Elijah moments sometimes. You remember Elijah, he goes up and he has this kind of big um, showdown, like prophet showdown with the prophets of Baal. And, and he wins and he runs away and he's so exhausted and tired that he has that like moment of self-pity. And he's like, oh, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. God, take my life now. And he's kind of wallowing in self-pity. And God's like, what are you whining about? You're not the only one. I've got this like remnant of solid people that have never bowed down and worshipped a foreign god. I've got my my church. I've got my people. I've got you doing a ministry and yeah, you know, you need to do that, but but why are you whining? My purpose, my plan cannot be thwarted. I've got my people. And they're in my hands and and so I mean, I have these moments where I'm like, "Oh, what's going to happen to the church and is it an endangered species?" And, and I think God says to me in those moments, you, "You're missing it." Things ebb and things flow and they go all over the place. But the church will prevail. It will succeed. It will finish what God intended for it to finish. The gates of Hades are not going to overcome it. So we, we need to understand that because here's the point. Now, if you turn to Matthew 28, um, an infamous passage of scripture. People love it. People hate it, whatever. But it's called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, it's the end of of Matthew. It's one of the most famous passages in Scripture. And here's basically what happens. Jesus is about to leave, and he takes these 11 disciples. He he brings them up on the hill, and then he commissions them. He tells them what they're supposed to go do. And this is what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Now, evangelicals. So if you've ever wondered what the word evangelical meant, like con- conservative evangelical or evangelical Christian or whatever, it's, it's basically the American kind of tweak on the word euangelion, which is good news in Greek. And so if you're an evangelical Christian, what you're basically saying is, I'm a Christian who's about the good news, who's about evangelism, about taking this and sharing it and getting it out there that Jesus has come, the kingdom of God is here. Okay, that's what it means if you're like an evangelical Christian. And this is kind of the, the, the mantra or the, the banner for evangelical Christianity. Christianity is not something I can just sit on It's not something I can just make about me. It's something that has to be shared. That's the commission. It's the calling. It's the commitment that every believer should have. And so we read the different form of it in Acts last week where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You're going to go be my witnesses. And it's kind of like this. It's it's back in the 1800s when there would be an election, a presidential election. There's a new king, a new king over the kingdom in some sense, a president. And how does that get out? It doesn't get out like CNN online, msn.com, you know, whatever. It gets out by like horseback and people traveling and spreading the word. And it takes, it's interesting if you go back and look at it, it takes weeks sometimes for people to, to hear the election results. Can you imagine waiting like a couple weeks to hear just what the results even are? I mean, it's one thing if it's like a deadlock, it goes on for five months and the courts get involved. But 
to even like know what the results kind of are is amazing. And Jesus is basically saying, I have come and I'm the king and, and my kingdom is coming and it's here now and it's, and it's spreading and, it, and it's within you and, and it's within the communities and it's wherever God is, is brought in and his values and what he wants, his plan is, is celebrated. That's my kingdom and the news needs to spread. It needs to go out. That's the commission. And so that's what the Christians were always supposed to be about. And when they didn't get it, God brought persecution into that Jerusalem church and forced them to scatter. If you're not going to go out, I'm going I'm to like, like ripple effect. I'm going to kind of take and shake the ground that you stand on so that you go where I want you to go. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I came to really dislike this verse, this passage of scripture when I was in seminary because I got really burned on conservative evangelical Christianity that was all about pulling conversions out of people. I, I found myself in a, in a place where I was surrounded by Christianity that really had focused it so tight in on this idea that it was all about getting people to say this prayer, this magic formula, and, and there's scripted words, and that's all it was about. That's what you lived for. That's what you died for. Everyone you saw, you're trying to find the angle to manipulate it, to somehow get them to say this prayer. And, and once they said that prayer, it's a notch in the belt and you move on. And it, it, it so just be, began to be distasteful to me that everything was kind of flowing this way of, of seeing people as projects. Does that make sense? And it felt really inauthentic to me and it felt... Like there was so much guilt. Like if you're a Christian, all you can do is just live with this guilt of, I haven't yet manipulated that person. Right? This neighbor I have, I haven't yet like forced them to say these words or I haven't yet invited them to like this clean comedian at my church telling them it's a great family event knowing that there's this like part at the end where they're gonna get this invitation and they don't know that, I know that and I'm like bait and switching them. You know, like, hey, come here, the comedian. And then, of course, what are they? Yeah, it's like I'm lying to him. And it began to be really distasteful to me. And so I got married, and Tamara was pregnant with our first child, and I took in seminary the, the required course on evangelism. Okay? And it all kind of culminated for me in this class because the teacher just happened to be a guy that was, was 100% head on this way um, where, where it was just everyone was a project and you, you mastermind and you plan and you strategize to make everyone a project and, and you study them almost on how you're going to bring them down and, and bring them into the kingdom that way. And it was so hard for me. And I, I, my Tamara was pregnant and my personality thrown in the mix, like I really reacted strongly against it. And so here's the, the long and short of it. I failed the class, okay? Only class in my whole entire life that I've got, I mean, I didn't withdraw. I got an F, okay? I failed the class and on evangelism. And um, so I don't know if I'm qualified to be a pastor, but the, it, it kind of culminated there. And here's what I realized as I just wrestled and prayed and wrestled and prayed um, and so I'll try and put it into an analogy for you. 
I think what I found distasteful was this, something that was supposed to be authentic, that was supposed to be news, good news. And if I asked you to talk to me about the weather yesterday, it's, it was good weather, right? I love that fall weather. Every one of you is going to talk about it differently and uniquely and authentically, and it's going to be real. And I guess what I was reacting to was the means by which we Christians had kind of become clones of each other in talking about this good news. We just weren't saying it and maybe aren't saying it authentically. And what's really interesting is um, I, I got a verse that we can throw up, but in Philippians, Paul says something really interesting. He's like, there's people going out with bad motives and they're talking about Christ because they want to get stuff themselves. Does that make sense? And Paul's like, sweet, the news is getting out. Jesus is king. Jesus rose from the dead. It's spreading. It's getting out. And so he delights in it. The interesting thing for us is everyone in America has heard of Jesus Christ. And so I think now we look at it and we're like, oh, no. Look at the way that person's talking about Jesus. It's not like someone's going to hear something they don't already know. They're going to develop a mindset that's not going to be productive or healthy. It's embarrassing. You know what I'm talking about? Like TBN. Oh, this is embarrassing. You know, or, or certain things get said a certain way and we're like, oh my gosh, this person's never going to want to talk to another Christian again because they, they can see how they're just a project and it's like win-lose. This person's just trying to win and, and they want the other person to lose and submit and be like, you know what, you're right. And it's such an like, embarrassing way. And so we react to the means. Does that make sense? The means of how this is happening, evangelism, sharing the good news. And we get embarrassed. And it's like my mom's like the, the most friendly person in the world, okay? And I love it. And she's this amazing grandma. When I was in junior high, I'd go to the grocery store and she'd hear a question two aisles over and she'd pop up from behind the candy and like answer the question two aisles over. And it's because she's nice, but in junior high, I'd duck when she'd pop up, you know, um, because sometimes it's the means, you know, like, and in junior high, you just don't want to talk to strangers. You just don't do that, you know, and I think we've kind of got that syndrome going and we react to the means and we want to duck. And it's like, I don't want to be about evangelism. I don't want to talk about the good news. I don't want to tell people they should become a Christian because I'm so embarrassed by how all of this is happening. And we don't want to throw out the end, the goal, because guess what? It's God's plan. It's God's purpose. We can't throw it out. If we throw it out, he's going to just like move the map around again and force us to do it. We've got to be committed to the Great Commission. Somehow, though, we have to realize it's not the end goal, the end purpose, the end plan. It's the problem. It's the means to the end. It's how it's been going on and, and recapture an authentic voice. When Tamara met me, there was, have you ever been to like Southern California? They have this place called Juice Stop. You know, it's like Jamba Juice. We've got a Jamba Juice here, right? So there's a Juice Stop. There's 110 different kinds of juices, right? 110. I had five juices a week. It was right on the way out of LA Fitness and I was working out back in that period of my life. And I, I'd have at least five, if not more, of those juices a week. I, I just, it was I love those things. And Tamara came down and we met, we started dating. And I'd been in California now uh, 
probably four to five years, and I'd had about five of these juices a week. So you do the math, okay? It's like $100,000 on juices. Okay, I don't know. Um, 110 different varieties at Juice Stop. I mean, they know how to do juice right now in California because it's warm all the time. It's sunny. Tamara goes in there, and uh, I remember distinctly, we're in this little one right off Rosecrans by the LA Fitness. We go in there, and I order a number one. And, and say, what do you want? Oh, she goes, oh, I don't know. She goes, well, what else, what's good? I said, I don't know. She goes, what do you mean you don't know? So all I've ever had is number one. And she goes, what do you mean all you've ever had is number one? Well, I tried it. I liked it. It's all I've ever had, $100,000 worth of juice. And, <laughs> and she just looked at me, just couldn't believe. And that's the way I am. I find something I like, I stick with it. And, and so I told her when we got married, you know, I found you. I'm going to stick with you. It's good news, you know. And, um, and she, like, but Tamara's this way. Tamara will go through all 110 juices, and then she won't ever go back again. She'll find somewhere else to go, okay. So she's all about the variety and the creativity and the adventure and, you know, something I've never had before and living, you know. And I think what we've done, I think I'm a representative of what Christianity is. If you want to know what Christianity America is, it's me. It's very boring, okay? Um, and we find one way of doing something, and then we just wear it out. We wear it out. And I think we need to be more like my wife, you know? Um, be like Tamara. What would Tamara do? Um, so we need to find ways to talk about Christ, that he is king, and his kingdom has come, and that when we go into church, we can celebrate, in some sense, that reality. We need to find 110 different ways to talk about it. And we need to find an authentic way to talk about it so that we realize that people aren't projects and and notches and belts aren't the thing that we should be after. We should be about God's plan. And that's for us to be witnesses. We should find means to communicate that. That I think do justice to the God that we have. That do in some sense, justice to Christ who was down to earth and authentic and real and was the first one to go into a leper colony and shed a tear before he ever proclaimed who he was. Remember that last little bit of his prophecy to Peter? And don't go tell anyone that I'm that guy. Jesus wasn't an egomaniac that, first thing, I'm glad to meet you. I'm Jesus Christ, son of God, savior. It wasn't the first thing out of his mouth. He didn't have to have it be the first thing out of his mouth. And and I think as Christians, we can go up to meet somebody and the first thing doesn't have to be you're a sinner and you're going to hell where you're going to burn forever and ever and ever. Um, (laughs) People matter. And somehow they need to know how much we care about them before what we know about Christ what we've experienced in our relationship with Christ is really going to be relevant to them. We've got to find 110 different ways to talk about Christ to people. And we can't just say, you know what, it it drives me crazy the way certain Christians talk about Christ or the TV talks about Christ or those kinds of things. So we've got to find authentic ways and I'm out of time. So let me just read one last thing, um, a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote. And he just put something really simply in this letter, and I think it, to me it brings clarity. Lewis says this, Oh, I'd nearly forgotten. This is just a personal letter to one individual. 
Oh, I'd nearly forgotten. I have one other piece of advice. Remember that there are only three kinds of things anyone need ever do. There are only three kinds of things anyone need ever do. Number one, things we ought to do. There's a moral obligation, something that's in accordance with God's plan, his purpose. Number one, things we ought to do. Number two, things we've got to do. And number three, things we like doing. I say this because some people seem to spend so much of their time doing things for none of the three reasons. Things like reading books that they don't like because other people read them. Things you ought to do are things that you like. Things that you ought to do are things like doing one's schoolwork or being nice to people. Things one has got to do are things like dressing and undressing or household shopping. And things one likes doing, but of course, I don't know what you like. Perhaps you'll write and tell me one day. And I think in Christianity, we've gotten into this habit of being down on the church, being critical, being negative. Ah, churches just suck you dry. They take your energy and they take the best of your life. Well, I mean, that'd be like the my heart complaining for beating or my lungs complaining for breathing. We're all a part of this body and the things that are the best pieces about us are what we're supposed to contribute. It's what makes this thing work. It's what allows for it to express what God wanted for it to express. And, and just because other people are down on the church doesn't mean we need to start wasting our time being negative about something that God said is gonna succeed. We need to not get cross-purpose with God's plan for the church. And things we ought to do, we ought to get in line with God's plan for the church and find a way, given our own personality, given our own context, our own temperament, our own likes, the people that we connect with, we ought to find a way to work out God's plan of being his witnesses, of, of telling people the good news of doing evangelism in such a way that it does justice to who we are, who that unique other person is, and to God's heart for this whole thing, right? His plan. I'm, I'm discombobulated because I'm way over time. I'm, let me pray, and then uh, we're done. Father, just uh, I pray that somehow you would just do a work in this community, that we would find in us the desire, the ability to spread the news of your Son, to be able to do that in a winsome way, to be able to, to love on people and to be authentic and down to earth and not manipulate and not ah, make people projects. Give us a fresh wind that, that allows for this to be exciting again so that we don't have to be critical or negative. We can just rejoice in this thing we get to do, to share with others something so beautiful and wonderful and life-changing. Get us excited about being the church, Father God, in Christ's name.